Hi, I'm CWS, and I'm the host of this new podcast called Behind True Crime, and I wanted to introduce myself. I'm a true crime blogger, but I also hold a master's degree in poetry, and yes, that's still a thing. I have long been obsessed with everything related to the mysterious, especially the true crime genre. When I was a kid, I would spend every single Friday night studying America's Most Wanted and dreaming of becoming an FBI detective. That didn't pan out, but I never lost my passion for the subject. On this show, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, podcasters, researchers, and subjects, all within the genre of true crime. As we know, true crime is becoming more and more popular, and I want to explore the whys. Why are we obsessed with this? Why do these things happen? Why is true crime important to our society at large? I want to pull back the curtain, find out what it really takes to work inside this field that has so many people completely captivated and yet is so controversial. I want to get to know each guest, how their work affects them, the way they see the world. I want to know what affects them the most, what sticks with them, the stories and the people. Really, I think I want to know how to seek the truth respectfully and dedicatedly. And who better to ask? So join me for the season of Behind True Crime, and let's find out together. Behind True Crime is produced by Hunt a Killer, the monthly murder mystery subscription box service. Check them out at huntakiller.com. Australian author Amanda Howard has been writing to incarcerated serial killers for almost 25 years. Known in the media as the serial killer whisperer, Amanda is a true crime writer, researcher, and novelist. She has an entire room in her home filled with various correspondence from the hundreds of murderers she has communicated with since her early 20s, and these include letters, gifts, art, and even a marriage proposal. On this episode, Amanda will speak with us about her experience dealing with these types of personalities, the games they play, and how she uses the knowledge she has gained to face the world at large. I'm your host, CWS, and this is Behind True Crime. Welcome to Behind True Crime. I'm your host, CWS, mysterious as always, and I am here interviewing Amanda Howard, the Australian true crime writer. Hey, Amanda, how are you doing? Hi, CWS. How are you? Oh, I'm doing really good. I really appreciate you coming on here. Thank you. It's weird to do this in different time zones, but we, we get are. there. Yep, you're over, way over there in Australia. What time is it there? It's early in the morning, and I'm... It's 9.30 here, and I think you're still on yesterday. Yes, I'm in yesterday. I'm in the past. <laughs> it's always really bizarre. All right, well, let's get into it. So you, Amanda, are known by some as the serial killer whisperer. And I was wondering, what do you think about that nickname? It's, it was a weird thing that happened. It turned up in an article a couple of years ago, purely because I seem to be someone who can break through that barrier that a lot of serial killers have. So um, it, it comes from those other people out there. There's a dog whisperer and a horse whisperer. Um, this is slightly different. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Uh, but it's it's an it's an odd sensation to think that after 20 years of doing this that I seem to have an, an inside scope that others don't seem to have. So I guess it's a bit apt, but at the same time it's one of those terms that sort of makes you think a little bit or like really is that who I want to be? Yeah, exactly. Do you really want to be a serial killer whisperer, right? Mm -hmm. But exactly. I would say, I mean, after 20 years, you must have found something about this that, that resonates with you. 
Well, exactly. I've um, I don't know how to do anything else, and there has been times over the years that I've thought I don't want to do this, but it keeps calling me back. And even currently, on on my writing desk right now, I have forty five letters to respond to from serial killers, um, and that's only about two weeks worth purely because of other things that are currently going on. I haven't had a chance to go through them, but they seem to respond to me, and I think that that's a fantastic thing. And it's as I said, after 25 years, I'm pretty much heavily invested into this sort of career. So it's something that I just, it's its part of me now. And I guess that does make me the serial killer whisperer. I guess it does. 40, you said 40 letters, 45 letters, unanswered, waiting to be answered from notorious serial killers around the world. Yes. That's right. And baby killers and arsonists and a couple of mass murderers. So not just serial killers, but a majority of them are. And basically those people that we need to get inside their heads if we're ever going to figure out why this happens and, and figure out a way to, to stop it from happening, right? That's right. I mean, I, ideally we'd love to be able to pinpoint these people before they become serial killers. It's not really possible, but we can certainly get their numbers down. We won't see the likes of people like Ted Bundy, I don't think, in the future. It's just something that doesn't happen. However, saying that... Um, there has been a couple of killers over the years that have avoided detection, usually because of their victimology. But um, it's getting that insight. I have a lot of killers that start off very guarded, and I had one from Kansas who said to me, I will not discuss my case with you. I will not discuss my family with you. I won't talk about this. I won't talk about that. And by his third letter, he was sending me court transcripts. So I seem to have that little... I don't know what it is, but it's, I won't call it a gift. I'm more likely to call it um, just something different to others that, that I'm able to get that information that others aren't. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I mean, it must you must have it. You must have what it is. I'm always, I'm interested to see the, the correspondence coming from your end as well. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll talk about that. First of all, I would like to hear something that we talk about on the show is, is your true crime route, which I know that I've written about you before. So I sort of know um, what got you into this case, or I mean, into this line of work. So can you talk a little bit about maybe that first case and even more so if there's something because, you know, there's that first case that we're all interested in, and I think mm -hmm. mine was Manson. Growing up, I was really obsessed with Charles Manson, as a lot of young teenagers are. And um, I think that I was just interested in his psychology. I was interested in all that. But even before that, I was interested in more of the darker, sinister side of life, um, had that morbid curiosity, had that, had those questions around... Um, around the darker aspects of life. So could you talk a little bit about both kind of what your first you know, first couple interests were in terms of actual crime and also maybe going farther back than that as well? Oh, well, we won't give dates. <laughs> sure, we don't need to give dates. No problem. I, won't, I, I wouldn't I dream won't of say it. how long I've been doing this, though I have said it's 25 years. But, yes, um, we know. <laughs> I, I, I had planned on being a singer and a dancer, so I come from a place of light and sparklies and sequins and spotlights. So it's really bizarre that this is where I've ended up. Um, what happened was back when I was in high school, we had the granny killer here in Sydney, and it was around the same time that Silence of the Lambs, the book, had come out. I'd just read the book, and so I knew a bit about um, criminal profiling and psychology, and we tried for the very first time here in Sydney to do a profile of the granny killer. This is a young teen boy, skateboarder, no job. Um, he 
was a loner, hated the the older population and things like this. And then when they arrested the granny killer, he was a 50-year-old father of two who had a steady job, a fantastic home in an elite suburb of Sydney, and it was just so opposite to the profile that it just sort of hooked me thinking we really don't know who these people are, that it literally can be anyone. So it could have been the teenage boy, but it could have easily have been the 50-year-old man. And it, that just instantly hooked me that really these serial killers are very normal and average and people don't pick them because everyone says, oh, yeah, look, look at him, look at his eyes, look at his, his gait, look at what his neighbours said. But really... They're very normal. They hold jobs. They hold very good conversations. I speak to a lot of them on the phone. And if you didn't know you were talking to a serial killer, you wouldn't know you were talking to a serial killer. And that's that's the fascination I have with all of this. So from there, um, I remembered a, a teacher had said to me once to go to the source and I was at uni doing my criminology degree and I was reading a textbook that had some inaccurate information about a local case that I knew a lot about. So I ended up writing to several serial killers just to see their side of the story and where they come from and who they are. And here we are, flash forward 25 years, and I'm still doing it with a lot of different serial killers from around the world. And it's just part of part of the research and part of my true crime journey. So it, it started very innocently, but it's... It's been a, a, a lifelong career of darkness and horror, but also um, you learn a lot. There's a lot of insight into everyone's human psyche when you can actually do a bit of profiling about the people around you. And it, I sometimes call it a good party trick too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good party trick. I feel like I, I am very similar to you in that as well. Um, the psychological aspect, I think, is really what fascinates most people. I don't think it's the, the grisly details as much as some people might think that. I think it's definitely more, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Why does this happen? And how can we prevent it from happening? And so you, mm -hmm. you mentioned that you really do believe that it, you can't tell a serial killer from another person. Even with all of your experience, do you think that you would be able to, if you met somebody, say, you know, if you had two people side by side that were pretty similar, is there anything that you would be able to discern from that that, that could, you know, make you think that one of them would be a murderer and one wouldn't? No. Nothing? No, absolutely oh, not. Amazing. Um, it, it, and and what I often say is that they're extraordinarily ordinary. They they are our doctors. You know, we had um, Harold Shipman in England. That was a doctor who killed possibly up to three hundred and fifteen patients. And do you believe that so, could be a tactic that they use the normalcy and they're appearing to be normal? Do you feel like it's just that they don't have as much interest in developing the kinds of personalities, friendships, relationships that, that normal people have? No, it's, it's absolutely the opposite. I mean, if these people were obvious, if these people were antisocial, people wouldn't get in cars with them. That's very true. They are, they are more Ted Bundy than they are Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. They are more, you know, gentle and polite and um, some of them – it's it's really hard to explain, but they, they can turn on that charm better than most of us, and that's the amazing part. If they were 
spitting and cursing and swearing and couldn't walk up to someone and talk to them, then they wouldn't gain that trust of their victims and get them into their car, get them to come with them, you know, pick up the hitchhiker on the side of the road. It wouldn't happen. Yeah, that's that's a perfect point. That's very true. And I mean, you're not the only one who said it. It's it's a cliche for a reason. I think that you know it could be anybody that that you know Ted Bundy was just sitting beside Ann Rule at that you know at that um, suicide, suicide hotline, which is just the that's most right. bizarre thing in the world, of course. Um, okay, so you've talked a lot about um, about sort of the way that your work has affected how you see the world and how you interact with people. And I'm interested Mm -hmm. as well in how then you gaining insight into the types of, I mean, I I would say, and tell me if I'm wrong here again, not a psychologist, of course, but a lot of people in the cluster B section of, of the psychological spectrum, a lot of antisocial sociopath, psychopath, whatever you want to call it, whatever the proper terms are, narcissists. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, do you feel like the ways that you have interacted with these people have informed maybe the way that you interact with people that you meet out in the world who may not be serial killers, but maybe people that you would want to steer clear of for other reasons? Well, see, we all think when we say psychopath, we all think serial killer. Mm-hmm. But our psychopaths are also that boss who takes credit for all of your work. Mm-hmm. They're the 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 underling who um, only works when the boss is around. There's the, all these different sorts of of people out there. These narcissists, these psychopaths, these sociopaths, all those terms. Um, and they're in our society. They don't just kill. So we actually deal with a lot of these sorts of personalities in our daily life. I mean, I have met some some horrific people and I'm thinking, I don't like you <laughs> and I know why I don't like you. And it's basically because they're a psychopath and but they but they function like everyone else does. But there's a reason that they have problems with with working with others. There's reasons that um, my alarm bells go off in, in particular. But uh, they're everywhere. Even there's not a scenario where you won't meet a psychopath. I mean, it's nice to think that that we all have wonderful workplaces that don't have these issues, but they are everywhere. They aren't just our serial killers. They aren't just our rapists. They aren't, you know, they're in they're in our court systems. They're in our hospitals. They're they're in all walks of life. Even teachers. So and children. I mean. These are often traits that, that come up through childhood. You have that child who demands the toy and takes it, and if it doesn't get what they want, well, then they bite the other child. I mean, there, there is signs like that that do come through, and then it's about um, changing those behaviours. But some of them just go through life like this, and doesn't mean that they're going to be a serial killer, but they're still a psychopath. Right. And I think, I mean, I think, I don't know even what it was. I think it was maybe Amy Schumer's show. What a random thing to bring up. But she um, had, a, she had a, a sociopath, a self-described diagnosed sociopath on her show. And, and that person was talking about kind of the bad, the bad press that sociopaths get, obviously, because mm-hmm. we, we link them to, to psychopaths, but that, mm-hmm. that, that, that there are 
very, there's a lot of value that people, people like that can bring to the world, especially in, in jobs like a surgeon that, that would be really difficult for a, a very empathetic person to, to undertake, you know, cutting open someone just, but in a good way, right. In a way that absolutely that is positive. And so I, that really, that moment was really interesting for me and kind of changed my thinking around it. And I think like, because you said, there is that drive and that power. Yeah, it is. Yeah. They, they're, there is those. I mean, that's why I said that they're in our hospitals and, and, and places like that because they have that drive and they will step on anyone to get where they want to be. And it's that sort of th that compass that, that we all have inside that say we can't hurt the others to, to get what we want. They don't see that. And that's about it's about that drive. And, yes, um, I have worked with surgeons and that God complex, some mm -hmm. might call sociopathy. So, Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. And so, mm -hmm. and I think, like you said, I mean, I think a lot of us have, have I mean, I think narcissists are very common as well um, in our society more so than we know. You know, people with narcissistic personality disorder, which I think is pretty again, marked by a lack of empathy and, uh, you know, ideas of, of selfhood that far exceed maybe the reality. Um, and I think, oh man, I just, I think what you do is so interesting because it is this, it's this very dramatic example of what we all run into on a daily basis with, mm -hmm. with people that, that are not really going to, to do us a service to know in our lives. Um, it doesn't mean that they're murderers, like you said. And, and, and I was wondering, do you think that I, I've read some things about the, these ideas behind these psychological concepts as being an, a gene or something like that that you might be born with, but it doesn't have to be activated. But if it does activated, if it, sorry, if it does get activated, it's often activated by neglect or abuse at a young age. And trauma. Is yeah, that something yeah, that, that seems accurate? Certain you it's something i mean we used to talk about serial killer triads and things like that that there was these developmental stages mm -hmm. that they go through or or become retarded within but um it there is a lot of people out there that are abused or are affected by trauma that don't become these these types of personality but um there is a couple of common threads through certain types of serial killers that there is this this background of of horror and terror but you know for every serial killer that is activated in in this way with um you know narcissism and and psychopathy there is you know a hundred others who have gone through the exact same thing and it hasn't happened to them so it's it's there is a sample of society and i think they aren't a different sample to everyone else so I'm, i don't know if i'm explaining that well um no, it makes sense. Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> it does. No, it makes perfect sense. It just what it is. It sounds like it's a it's a perfect storm, right? It's a a, a, a perfect strange combination of factors that lead to this highly rare individual, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, it's highly rare, and yeah. thank God for that. Um, yes. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about is um, kind of on the same on the same topic here is you talk a lot about the games that these people play, that these murderers that you speak with or other you know career criminals, uh, they, they treat you in a certain way, right? And they, they can turn on a dime, like you said. And I was really interested in, in how you view those games and, and just to talk a little bit about the power dynamics behind that and kind of what your theory is about, about why they, why they communicate with you in the way that you, you know, call the, the games that they play. 
the games is a that the games are a really hard part of of this whole this whole subject. As I said, some of them start with these are the rules, you'll play by my rules and this is what happens. So my response is no, you'll play by my rules and this is how it's going to happen. And I think it's that that power shift that some of them appreciate because a lot of them I mean they so many of them are narcissistic they that they love that people want to talk to them they love that people want to write to them and hear hear about their lives i mean let's face it we all love to talk about ourselves and um serial killers are, are very much the the top of that sort of food chain if if we gave them mobile phones i think that they would take so many selfies it's it's not funny <laughs> really i think they would because they just they they would be the highest users of all of those sorts of programs and whatever, all of them. So can that I be your next I, project? Can you send them a phone? Can you imagine the selfies that we would get from that? Yeah, I can. And Horrifying. that's the scary part. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I do have one. I do have one serial killer that does have a phone. Um, he is in a prison in the United States. That's as far as I'll go with that. But he um, he's on Facebook quite a lot, actually. So... And so um, he's, yeah, he's asked me to help him write his own story. And so so he contacted me as author to author kind of mm. thing. Um, he tried to hide who his, his identity was, but it, that took me about 12 seconds to crack that. So, <laughs> <laughs> And with the games that a lot of these killers play, I mean, they believe that they're rock stars. And the first, one of the first things I do with them is say, no, you're not a rock star. You're not like famous you're infamous because you're a pretty hardcore criminal who have done some horrible things so let's talk about you being that that you're that monster that you are evil and it brings them down it brings them to a point where it sort of breaks down that barrier of this fame and fortune that they think they're going to get and works on who they are and why they've done what they've done yeah. I mean there's there, there's some killers out there that come back to me, no, 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 if you want to talk to me, this is what's going to happen and this is how much you're going to pay and you need to contact this person so then they say it's okay. Whereas others, it breaks down that wall very quickly and we have a very different relationship, not that that's the word I want to use. But yeah. we have, yeah, we have that rapport and that respect because he he or she knows where I'm coming from and, they, and I know where they're coming from then and there's a... I mean, you can say there's honesty and trust, but you'll never have honesty and trust from a serial killer regardless. But it just gives that different level of respect. Definitely. And so do you think most of these people, generally speaking, do they see themselves as being evil or do you think that they see themselves more as, you know, victims or more as as martyrs? Um, I think... There's a few different sorts. I've had those that say, yeah, this is what I did. It was terrible. I shouldn't have. This is how I cope with this. They talk about um, things that happen on the anniversary. So, oh, it's been this long since since my victim died. You know, I wonder about their family. So, so there is those sorts that just say, yes, this is what I've done and I accept that and I deserve to be where I am or I, I deserve to sit in the electric chair, whatever the case may be. Then there are the others who, no, I'm innocent, I shouldn't be here, um, I'm the victim, you know, that they got it terribly wrong, even though they found the bodies under my crawl space, you know, there are those that actually do that. Mm -hmm. And then there is a third type who, I might have done it, but 
I'm going to see how I can really stuff up the system and make it work for me. And they're the harder nuts to crack. They're the ones who uh, have basically their feet in both in mm-hmm. both sides of that of that line, and they're the ones that can be unpredictable and they're the tough ones and they're the ones who like to play the games as well because this week they're innocent and so they're doing all of these appeals and next week they'll let slip about something that happened at one of the crimes. So they play both sides. So does that mean that you think that some, and specifically, because I would say easily murderers can experience empathy, but when when it becomes serial like that, do you think that there are serial killers out there who experience genuine remorse? Absolutely. I've had a serial killer ring me and cry his heart out because it was the anniversary of one of his victims and he was heartbroken that even 25 years later that he really did that and he can't believe that how cruel and horrible that was. Now, is this because he's showing remorse or is this because he got caught? Mm-hmm. Really. Um, I mean, when you look at the case, they did let the last victim go and I think there's true remorse there and but at the same time you sort of have to take it as what it is but understand that there might just be a bit of playing there as well but some of them I I believe are upset Mm -hmm. and especially when you're up to your 20th and 30th year and you realize that you're there because of that one moment or several obviously with serial killers but they have these moments where they just have the realization and that finality of what they did and and how evil they truly were and I think that a lot of them feel that those that will express it do and they do with what looks honest um that there's a killer I was talking to in Melbourne here in Australia and he wrote me a letter every single day that he had killed a victim on like the anniversaries and just going through how he felt and his thoughts about that butterfly effect of how his his crimes affected so many different people not just the victims and their families but also his family and that he doesn't get to see his mother now who's very elderly and just all of these effects of something that shouldn't have happened. That's really sort of surprising. That's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like you can get these people, like you said, you can get these people to open up in different ways. So have you guys heard about Hunt a Killer? It's a murder mystery subscription box service that delivers packages monthly right to your door. Their talented team of writers has created an immersive experience that their members are really obsessed with. So here's how it works. You sign up at huntakiller.com and select a plan, but they only allow a few hundred members each month, so get in there. Once you're registered, a package arrives at your doorstep each month with physical items and correspondence curated by their serial killer, which is kind of like a Hannibal Lecter type. You've got to decode, decipher, investigate. There's forums, Facebook groups, podcasts, live videos, all to help you through your sleuthing. Hunt a Killer has been featured in BuzzFeed, Bustle, Fastco, all the rave reviews. So work with thousands of other armchair detectives in the online community and see if you can solve the mystery. Use the code BEHIND for 10% off your first order. 
So can you tell me about some of the most notable things you've received from people? Because I know there's been a marriage proposal, at least one marriage proposal, including a lock of hair. There's been some stuff from Richard Ramirez and Charles Manson, which sounded like those ended pretty abruptly. I'm just interested in some of the things that maybe our listeners might might be interested in as well. Yeah, so the lock of hair and the proposal come from Bobby Joe Long, who's in Florida. Um, it was a long time ago now. It was probably about 10 years ago mm-hmm. he, he sent those. Um Actually, it was it was longer. It it was around um, 2001, because what had happened was at the time there was the big anthrax scare in the United States after September 11. So it's 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 weird that that's linked in for me. And people were getting those envelopes with white powder and everything. I received a, a letter from from Long and something dropped out of it, and I instantly had an anthrax scare. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, what what was that? Um, that dropped out of the letter. Then when I saw it and it was black and hairy and I have a paralyzing fear of spiders, I instantly thought it was a spider and then I realized it was a lock of hair, which then I just got grossed out. That's just gross. Would you rather it like have been hair. a spider is the question. <laughs> I don't know. I think I might have preferred the anthrax, <laughs> yeah, which is really? a thing to say. <laughs> that's, that's actually, sorry, that, that's a bit gruesome for me even. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's not too gruesome for me. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah but uh, it was a lock of hair sent sent from long and also a marriage proposal and um I don't share with these people that I have a family so he assumed I was single and I don't change those assumptions I just let them have their game so then I can play do different games back um but I said yeah no thank you I'm not interested in a marriage proposal so the next letter they come ask me to be a witness at his execution. So, mm. you know, there's a bit of a death do us part kind of weird response there, I guess. But, yeah, I got a couple of things from Charles Manson. He, It's almost like a production team for Charles Manson. It's There's nothing really – He's he gets so much fan mail and things like that that – it's um it's hard to actually get through. So the stuff I do get from Charles Manson isn't as in depth as I get from others. And not a typical serial killer either, really. No, well he's not a serial killer at all. But yeah, people well I like guess not a serial killer. That. You're right. Yeah, more mm-hmm. of a more of a manipulator maybe. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I I prefer to put him in with the cult leaders. Yeah, so like absolutely. Yeah, your Jim Jones type and things like that. Definitely. Um, Richard Ramirez, yeah, Richard sent me a whole lot of pornography and vile poetry and things like that and made requests for me to send him photos of naked women and things like that. It was um, regardless of what I tried to do to turn that around with him, um, which I'm usually successful with, he had no interest. He just kept going on that same path. So... Yeah. Basically got to a point, it's like, thanks, but no thanks. Um, he was someone I was interested in hearing other sections of his life about, but, yeah, he didn't want to play the game. And um, it's I have a pretty good strike rate, so the fact that I couldn't get him to talk is very rare. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, he had an interesting childhood, I know. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. and that's what I wanted to hear about. Yeah, I'm sure. Um Currently on my wall I have a painting from a child killer. Uh, she sent that to me only a couple of weeks ago now. The whole reason it's on, on my wall is because it was um, folded up quite small to fit in the envelope. So it's on my wall purely to stretch out 
So because I don't glorify these sorts of things and I don't have them, you know, out on display, I do often take them to the talks I do so people can actually see what what these people send. Um, is there do, is there art just, often? Yes, a lot of artwork. Mm-hmm. I find Again, that really interesting. Yeah. It just doesn't seem like there'd be a huge crossover between people who don't experience much empathy and, you know, being a poet or an artist. Uh, but I guess being an artist is also sort of can be can be a narcissistic pursuit because mm-hmm. it is just the what is it really? It's just the self right made made external in a visible mm-hmm. way. So, yeah, absolutely. yeah. You no, know, I get a lot of artwork, um, usually drawings, very few paintings, but I do have multiple paintings. Um, poetry is massive. I get a lot of poetry because that's easy for them to, to do mm-hmm. as well. Um, right, you don't need supplies so- to do that as much as you would well, yeah, paint. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. But painting and everything, it's it's very a special select group of the prison population that get paints and things like that. So, I mean, some of them have typewriters, some of them have computers and printers. So it's actually quite surprising the access that some do have to certain things. Mm-hmm. Some some prisons, like in Florida, uh, they get this soft, wet pen sort of pencil weed thing that's really – apparently it's like holding a piece of spaghetti. So that's obviously so that they then can't use it as a weapon. And then others send me letters that they've printed out on laser printer. So mm. it's actually quite surprising the differences I get from, from various serial killers. Oh, that is so okay. Uh, so yeah. now you are a mother, right? And so yes. how how do you feel doing this sort of work as a mother? I'm hyper vigilant. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> My children especially as especially when one of them's in his his late teens he probably doesn't want me to be as, as hyper vigilant as I am needing to know where he is and if he says he's going to be home at a certain time and seconds past that time I'm calling to see where he is but um I'd, I'd rather be hyper vigilant because if something happens it's too late yeah I and I'm sure you, you can't know that take, mm-hmm. yeah I've I know I know too many stories of children walking up laneways or going down to the park and they're never seen alive again so my children know I'm hyper vigilant granted they think they have freedom but they don't know that I'm just there (laughs) you're just always there watching (laughs) (laughs) I need to know and and that's been a hard thing to do especially especially with teenagers to allow that freedom but they also know enough to know why I act this way so um, you know, it's. I would never l- let my children go to a public toilet by themselves ever in a million years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that's a, just a haven. And so this is sort of similar to what we were talking about before, but um, since you have children, so you have people that you're, you're teaching um, about the world, do you think that this has helped you assert something that I have been learning a lot about in my life is the idea of boundaries, right? And asserting what is okay for you, especially as women, you know, we're taught that we aren't really supposed to have those boundaries. We aren't supposed to, to question people. We're always supposed to be polite. We're always supposed to go along with the flow. And, um, it just seems like even from when you mentioned earlier that, that power shift that you create when, when, a killer might say to you, this is how it's going to be. And then you say, well, actually, this is how it's going to be. Do you think that this kind of work has strengthened that resolve in you? And also, do you think that 
this is something that other people at the world at large kind of need to understand? I think we all need to go with our gut instincts. I mean, we're always told as children to, you know, be polite to our elders and, you know, if someone says hello to you, you, you know, you're supposed to say hello back and everything. But my children know if you don't if you don't want to talk to someone, if you don't feel comfortable, you don't talk to them and that's okay. And I think that's probably something that a lot of us don't do, mm-hmm. but it's something that I have always instilled in in my children and my nieces and nephews and anyone else I talk to. If you don't feel comfortable talking to someone, you just don't because there's probably less bad people out there than I'd like to think. But at the same time, I just, you know, because what, as, as adults, we look back and think, oh, gee, that guy was a bit creepy, you know, but mum always said to me, I need to give him a hug and call him uncle. And when you're an adult, you think, no, that I, I can see those alarm bells now. So my mm-hmm. children know that if, if someone creeps them out, that's okay. You 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 just say, yeah, no thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. I don't I don't force people on onto my children, though I'm more of a judge of character than they are, and I might sort of step in between people. I think no, I don't want you to hug my my young children. Um, it could be totally innocent, but I don't care if I don't feel it. I my children don't have to go through that. And I mean, it's it's probably because I know too much. But at the same time, as I said before, if something happens, it's then too late. Definitely, definitely. So I'd rather them say, no, I'm not comfortable with that person, but that's okay. Yeah, you might rather them be a little rude, right? Maybe a little Mm -hmm. rude instead of the alternative. Oh, it's just – It's not even rude, really. It's It's just – There's flight ways. There's flight ways. Like, yeah, thank you, but, yeah, I'm – I mean, I'm a family, I don't like to hug. I'm not one of those people. And with things I've been going through recently, it's it's been hard that lots of people like to hug and okay. I just, I'm not that way inclined. But I think it's okay that we don't have to do things because people say, oh, well, that's the polite way. No, it's not the polite way. You know, if I don't feel comfortable around someone, I don't have to be. And and I think that as a society, though, I mean, that does cause social issues with a lot of people. Oh, but, I mean, didn't Jerry Seinfeld do it just the other day to, was it Kesha or someone? Yeah, yeah he thanks, said no, no to Kesha. <laughs> exactly. Right. And that's not a bad thing. Great pop culture reference, by the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's <laughs> Which perfect. Which is rare for me. <laughs> no, it's not. It's like a perfect example of what we're talking about. Um, no, and I, I, a lot of people thought that that was rude. And I was like, you know what? He just doesn't want to hug Kesha. It's not the end of the world. We don't even really, we don't need, you know, my whole news feed to be plugged up with this information. Um, yeah, see, I didn't see an issue. I thought, yeah, no. And he went, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, he wasn't okay. mean. Yeah, it was yeah. just great. Um, and so that, I guess, brings me to uh, the, the second question that I always like to ask is, um, why true crime? And that question is really about why is true crime important? Why, why do we need to care, right? Because it's a genre that can be the best and worst thing, I think. It can be mm-hmm. sensational, and it can be exploitive, and it can cause more pain. But it can also do other things that have value. So I'm interested in why, why true crime? Why should we value this genre, and how can we make sure that it holds its integrity? Yeah, I think this genre is one of the most judged genres that there is. People have an opinion. People might not have 
have an opinion about steampunk fantasy, but they will have an opinion about true crime. So when I am introduced to people, sometimes they just say I'm an author, sometimes they say I'm a true crime author. It just depends because because we are judged on what we do. Um, I actually had a crisis of conscience a couple of years ago when I was just looking at all the books I've written and just trying to do a, a rough tally of how many murders and violent crimes and rapes and child abuse and it just it, it makes you think why am I doing this why why do I think I have a right to do this and it was a really tough time I went through with that at, at the time I was actually writing a book on child sexual predators and I just come to a point I think do we really need to know or want to know this but I mean it was something I had I had to work through and, and the book eventually got published but it, it needs to have the right balance and there is a lot of censorship in true crime. People think that it's gratuitous, but those that, that I've read, I've never read an exploitive one, mm. I, but I have always found them to be quite tasteful. There is a lot of harm, there is a lot of hurt, but it is also a genre that we can learn a lot from because it teaches us about a society as a whole. This, this isn't new. We've had serial killers for thousands and thousands of years. And I think at the same time, when people like to judge and say, oh, how horrible and everything, it's like, well, did you slow down at that car crash? Mm-hmm. Do you look at the ambulances flying past you? We all want to think, thank God that's not me. And I think we often look at true crime as a, as a yardstick where we, oh, my God, that's a really old term. But it, it gives us <laughs> it gives us a way to, to say I'm okay because that didn't happen to me. And it makes us feel a bit better about ourselves knowing that, oh, gee, I had a bad childhood but I didn't become that. Or, gee, I went out and got drunk as a teenager and that didn't happen to me. Gee, I was a mum and didn't end up in that abusive relationship. I think we look at those sorts of things and just – just glad about our own decisions in life. I mean, a lot of these things, people are just, it's bad luck. They're in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. And it's not about blame, especially not on on the victims. But it's just something that allows us to sometimes count our own blessings. And I think that that's an important thing that we learn from true crime. Definitely. That's an interesting answer. I haven't heard that one before. I like that. so can you, we're going to wrap up here. I just want to make sure that we talk about some of your books that you have out. Can you tell us what you're working on right now or what, what's new and what we can get our hands on? Well, after 19 books with a with a basically all about crime and serial killers and things like that, my actual next book is called Life, Death and Other Funny Stories. And it actually it culminated from a previous book I wrote last year called Rope, A History of the Hanged. I found a lot of unusual cases of hangings and deaths that actually went quite wrong. Some of them, though, I mean, it's still tragic, but they ended up dying in very strange circumstances that it actually fueled an idea to create a book about mysterious and strange deaths. Um, I also have a TV segment here in Australia on, on the show Studio 10 where I actually talk about strange deaths and things like that. And so I started to put together a whole lot of strange deaths and then I found a whole lot of strange births and marriages and um, adventures and failed inventions and things like that that um, helped create this new book. So it's it's a bit of a funny book and I've never written humour before but I think I'm funny so I thought why not um, as, as, as you do. Mm-hmm. But 
Um, so, so that's a bit of a departure for me. But as as I just mentioned, my last book was Rope, A History of the Hanged. Mm-hmm. Actually, that wasn't my last book. I'll, I'll, I'll get to my last book. But, yeah, Rope was um, – that's more of a historical examination, not just of judicial hangings but also things like suicide and um, other events like that. Um, there's been some famous people who, who used hanging as, as, as part of sexual exploits and things like that. So there's mm-hmm. whole, all different chapters in that book. It's not just, oh, gee, this guy – did this crime and so so we hanged him it's i thought that's how that book was going to develop but uh the the final product was so interesting i I found it quite quite remarkable some of these stories um in the united states they actually hanged an elephant for killing two handlers no they didn't so yes they did and it was and it's a horrible horrible case so people have to go out and and buy rope because there is some interesting stories in there like that that Um, sounds so good that's yeah it it, it was just it was just so different yeah um after that i earlier this year i released um which was my 19th book uh, that was killer australia so i've written a book just on our famous crime so not something that other audiences would be interested in but i think at the same time they might be because um us seems to have the market cornered for serial killers but it's interesting to see what other places have and and we have quite a dark history um, we were basically built on the backs of convicts. So there could be a reason why we've had some very dark crimes happen here. So that's, that's another book. I mean, I could go on, as, as I said, I've got 19 books. I did a, I did a fiction series, which is based on a, um, criminal ritual specialist who, who looks at very ritual, ritualistic crimes that happen. Um, that's set in a, sort of in a place in the United States, though I don't sort of pinpoint exactly where it is. So that was a fiction series I've written four books on. It's just nice to write and not have people and families destroyed. So when I had my crisis of conscience, yeah, it was, that was a freeing thing for me to do was to write this, this series. It, it, um, it still uses all of my experience and interviews with serial killers and everything, but it's, it's put into a, a fictional place um i've written yeah i'm just trying to think murder on the mind is is one of my biggest that's um that breaks down that term serial killer and i examine several sorts of serial killers so your poisoners and your blackbeards and sorry your bluebeards um blackbeards are pirate <laughs> sorry that's <laughs> <laughs> oh, weird the words that get stuck into your head purely because yeah. i found blackbeards um ship this week i think um that that's something random sorry um, I love history. I have um, I have a passion for history. So when I write books like Rope, um, it's a very joyful thing to do, regardless of of the topic. But purely because I get to dig through old archives in museums in London and things like that, it's just a, a joy to do that sort of research. Yeah. But yeah. Um, before that, I yes, I I wrote Predators, which is um a book on child sex predators. I wrote that with um, a top criminologist here in Australia who unfortunately has gone to jail for child sex crimes, no. which is, yeah, that's really hard to reconcile. But it's something I've, yeah, it's that's, that's, that's a strange thought to have. But it was a very good book and I thoroughly enjoyed writing that even though it, it broke me. And even though it sort of proved to you that it could be anyone, right? I mean, it could be anyone, and that you wouldn't even know. God, that is mm-hmm. bizarre. That is so, yeah, that is an intense so, thing to discover. 
Yeah, so you work closely with someone and then, um, I mean, we wrote that book in uh, 2006, 2007, um, and he was sentenced I think about two years ago so and these were historical child sex crimes against friends of his daughter or something like that it was something yes so that that was a tough book and then it become tougher after it's after its publication but it just proves that when I say to my children you don't have to be friends with people if if you don't like them this is why because you don't know who who's standing beside you sometimes you even though you can work with them for 20 hour days and it sounds like if anyone would know it would be you well thank you so much amanda for coming on our show i know everyone's going to be so excited to hear all of your insights excellent no it was really good to talk to you i'm i'm glad we got a chance to do this i'm glad we did too even though i had to travel ahead in time (laughs) yes you did (laughs) yeah well thank you again amanda and uh as everyone out there, this has been Behind True Crime, and I'll make sure when you guys get links to Amanda's books, make sure you follow her and keep paying attention to what she's doing. Behind True Crime is presented, produced, and funded by Hunt a Killer, the monthly murder mystery subscription box service. Check them out at huntakiller.com. James Proud does our music. Jake Weholt helped produce this episode. And a special thanks to our correspondent, Lane Keniston. Join us next week. Thanks so much. I'm CWS, and this was Behind True Crime.